0: All right, so, um, ladies and gentlemen, as you know, the topic of these uh, three classes is uh, to try and name the three biggest challenges facing the Jews today. I'm going to make a point of saying that, what I said last week, that I uh, dare not speak on behalf of the entire nation. Everyone is welcome to name whichever challenges you think are the biggest that are facing the Jewish nation today. I've named my own, but it's not nec- I'm not necessarily right. If you disagree, please... Uh, you free to tell me. Uh, I like this agreement. That's what uh, this should be about. In fact, I heard from Shimon Peres directly, as he's quoted, um, also in the name of someone else, a Nobel Prize winner. But Shimon Peres was once giving a lecture that I attended, and he said that uh, the only thing he remembers from uh, his return from school as he was a child was not returning to a home where dinner was waiting for him was not even returning to a home where his parents were waiting for him, because his parents were hard-working people. He was returning to her home where his grandmother was waiting for him in Poland, and she had for him just one question. She was waiting for him, not with dinner, but with a question. The question was, Shimon, did you have any good questions for your teachers today? And that's what made him so great as he was uh, recounting. But I think that's uh, a powerful message, that's what Judaism is all about, we have to ask questions, so this really should be more about questions than answers. But uh, in my humble opinion, going now to the second class, the biggest, the second biggest, uh, not, uh, they're not necessarily in order, right, in priority, in a a priority order, but the second uh, challenge that I've chosen that Judaism faces today is, I believe, anti-Semitism. Now, yes, we've faced anti-Semitism since our formation as a nation as we'll soon see, but I think today it's taken on a different and perhaps even more dangerous form. You see, in the Middle Ages, people hated Jews, why? Because of (coughs) their religion, they were different. Um, Later on, people hated Jews because they were communists or they started communists for other reasons. It's quite interesting because the history of anti-Semitism, if you think about this, is full of contradictions. There hasn't been one solid reason throughout history why people have hated, hated Jews. There's always been a different reason. Today's anti-Semitism, and this is why uh, I'm picking this as the topic, today's anti-Semitism comes in the form of a nation. People hate Israel, Zionism is racism, as they infamously said in Durban a few years ago, Durban, South Africa. And uh, this is now the new form of anti-Semitism that we're witnessing today. Yes, you still have anti-Semitism in Europe and so on, but it always goes back to Israel, as if Israel was really the big problem. Now, uh, I have to begin with just a, a short story about this Drew, who was uh, just reading his newspaper comedy in Central Park, New York, on a bench. All of a sudden... Someone from behind him comes and gives him a punch on his face. He says, this is from Iran. The Jews are polite Jew, he doesn't react, continues to read his newspaper. Five minutes later, the same guy comes, punches him now in the stomach. He says, this is from Lebanon. All right, a few minutes go by, again, another punch in the stomach, this time I much harder and this man says, this is from the Palestinian Authority. The Jew can't take it anymore, he doesn't react immediately. He disappears. He leaves his newspaper on the bench. The man that was punching him said, fine, great. I'll uh, grab this newspaper and I'll read instead of this Jew. After half an hour, this Jew comes back and takes this man by surprise with a hammer. Punches the hammer or slams the hammer on this man's shoulder. Man turns around, says, what now? He says, this is from Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, friends. So we've always been told anti-Semitism is from this. It's because of that. It's for this reason. But if we have to go to the very root of anti-Semitism, I don't think, unless uh, you can correct me here, But I don't think we'll find one rational, essential reason that stayed with the anti-Semite throughout history. It's always changed, it's always mutated into different forms. But here in front of us is really a list, I tried to collect here, a list of anti-Semitism throughout the ages. It's a sad list, it's actually a painful list, reading it as a Jew. But as you can see, anti-Semitism began way uh, long ago our slavery in Egypt that lasted for 10 years, where Pharaoh said, whoa, 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 there's this nation that's multiplying and uh, let's start and drown their babies, boys, in the Nile River and enslave them. So that's when anti-Semitism began. It might have existed before that, in Abrahamic times also, so on. But as a nation, we've suffered anti-Semitism in Egypt. It went through the ages, maybe someone here, and again, I'm, like last week, I'm going to ask everyone to read a different text. So maybe you can begin by just reading the different stages or the different ages of anti-Semitism that experienced uh, various attacks of anti-Semitism. And I do want this group to pay attention to the types of attacks, types of anti-Semitism. Notice the contradictions. Let's go.
1: 1430 BCE, slavery in Egypt. 356 BCE, Haman attempts genocide of the Jews.
0: Right, My is coming up. By the way, today's... Is- uh, the small Purim. If it was not, gonna, if this year is a leap year, right? So if uh, this year hadn't been a leap year, today we, have, we would have celebrated Purim. We have celebrated our victory over Haman, what you just read. Okay.
1: 138 BCE, Greek government outlaws the practice of Judaism in Israel. Mm-hmm. Conquer, 624, Mohammed watches as 600 Jews are decapitated in Medina in one day. 640, Jews are expelled from Arabia. 1096 is the First Crusade, thousands of Jews tortured and massacred. Right. 1146 is the Second Crusade, thousands right. of Jews, including women and babies, are butchered across <coughs> Europe.
0: Right. I have to say, the Church at the very beginning, and uh, when the Crusades were launched, uh, didn't take an active position uh, or didn't participate at all in the butchering of Jews, they remained quiet. During the Second Crusade, they changed their position a little bit, became more aggressive, But the First Crusade was uh, just terrible, with thousands of Jews around Europe were being butchered as the Crusaders were going to the Holy Land. Um, Their uh, uh, conquering of the Holy Land didn't last a long time, it lasted a year. And then they had to go back. The problem is that when they went back, they continued to butcher Jews. (laughs) uh, Until the Second Crusade happened. Rashi, the legendary Rashi commentary, uh, lived during this First Crusade very last years of the First Crusade, Um, so the very last years of his life, um, actually are parallel to the uh, beginning of the First Crusade. His grandson lived during the times of the Second Crusade, another great scholar, Rabbeinu Tam. By the way, there's a fascinating story about him, how he was saved from the Crusaders. But Rabbeinu Tam himself was a wealthy Jew, just, I I don't mean to deviate, it's it's a good story, it's it's good, that that enriches our history, right? But uh, Rabbeinu Tam, the grandson of Rashi, who was a great French scholar, he himself was sought after by the Crusaders. They went after the heads, as many of our enemies did, knowing that if you go after the head, then the whole body afterwards goes away. So, follows through. So, they went after Rabbeinu Tam, who was a head. Rabbeinu Tam was captured and was placed on a stage in the city center. Why? for his public uh, execution. As he was being hung on a cross, one of the noblemen of the city passed by and realized, wow, this is Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbeinu Tam, who actually has lent me money in the past. I owe him a favor. So he shouts to the Crusaders, hey, leave this guy alone. Crusaders, of course, don't listen. So the man says, well, if you kill Rabbeinu Tam now, you you would have killed just another Jew. So instead of killing him, let me convert him. It will take me three days. Come back in three days. If I wasn't successful, you can have Rabbi Tam and kill him. This man took Rabbi Tam. They agreed. He took Rabbi Tam to his house. As soon as they reached home, he said to him, Look, I owe you a favor. You've been good to me in the past. Run away. I'm not going to convert you. Run away. In three days, they're coming back to get you. Rabbi Tam overnight took his family and ran away to the south of France to try where his grandfather was from. That's his story, but that's just to to somehow uh, convey to you the, the seriousness of, of these massacres throughout Europe by the Crusaders. Let's continue. I'm sorry about that. Go ahead, continue.
1: Uh, 1200s, Jews blamed for causing the Black Plague are murdered in Frankfurt, Speyer, Koblenz, Mainz, Krakow, Alsace, Bonn, and other cities. Right which was, by the way, uh, the most ridiculous
0: uh, accusation against the Jews. The black plague came from traders in the East, from India and other places, um, and Jews had nothing to do with it, then they said that the Jews contaminated the wells, and therefore they should be killed. They contaminated the wells with the black plague. In any case, let's continue. 1290.
1: Jews are expelled from England in… Thir- 600
0: years. 600 years they weren't allowed to walk onto the land of England, of Great Britain. Imagine
1: that. 1306, the Jews were expelled from France. Right, for
0: about 100 years.
1: 1349, Jews expelled from Hungary. Okay. 1400s, the Jews accused of murdering Christian children and baking matzo with their blood.
0: Right, that. Uh, the blood libel, right? Exactly, the blood libel, famous blood libels that spread. By the way, do you know where it started? It started in Norwich, England. That's where the hmm. idea of a blood libel began, where uh, they accused the Jew of, using, of murdering. Uh, a local to use his blood and bake matzah for Passover. Which is, by the way, against what the Torah says, obviously, you're not allowed to have blood, you're not allowed to... You know, the Halakha Jewish law even says that if you are bit by a mosquito and you have uh, some blood on your hand or wherever, you're not even allowed to suck it like some do. Why? Because it's eating blood and that's a prohibition in the Torah. So, it goes against everything we stand for, obviously, but they use that time and time again. You know what the most famous blood libel was, anyone? Most famous actually happened here, uh, not here in America, but um, the man is buried here in America. Um, one of the most famous is anyone here from Russia, Ukraine? My
2: family,
0: uh, yes. Yeah? yeah. Well, I'm sure you've heard of the Bayless trial. Yeah. Mendel Bayless, yes, Mendel Bayless was a Jew in uh, Kiev, Kiev, Russia, who in 1911, I believe, was accused of killing a Russian local by the name of Andrei Yushensky. He was just 14 years old. Why? To use his blood to bake matzah for Passover. And uh, they accused Mendel Baylis, put him in jail for two years. During those two years, they tried to convince him, you know what, if you plead guilty, we'll let you out. Mendel Baylis said, no, I'm innocent, I'm not pleading guilty. Of course, he also knew the Russians. He knew that if they, they won't keep their side of the deal. So he said, no. And uh, the, the Mendel Bayless trial that occurred thereafter, after his the torture for two years, that imprisonment, uh, was the trial, was one of the trials of the century. I think it was as big as the Dreyfus trial, or as big as the Leo Frank trial here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, it was during the same period. But Mendel Bayless uh, had the best, perse- uh, best defense team. Many stories about it, I won't go into it. One of the little details is that they accused Mendel Bayless, uh of stabbing this Andrei Yushensky 13 times. That's how he killed him, because the number 13 is a special number in Judaism, That's there's 13 tribes, there's 12 tribes plus one, because one of them is divided, Ephraim and Menashe. Uh, there's 13 uh, principles of mercy, attributes of mercy that God has, Bar Mitzvah is Anyway. At the end, they found 14 wounds, not 13, on his body. So that went down the drain. But there are many stories like about the trial. At the end, he was found innocent. He was found innocent. Mandel Bayless ran away to Palestine. He suffered terribly from poverty in Palestine. He then moved to America. And uh, one day, he was vacationing in Florida. I think it was in 1934. And he had a heart attack in his hotel room and passed away. He's buried today. I've been there. He's buried today in Queens, New York, at the Mount Carmel Cemetery, where? That cemetery is the same cemetery that also has another special Jew, Leo Frank. He also had similar accusations here in America. It's interesting, an interesting coincidence. But uh, that was, you see, a blood libel that occurred not too long ago, 1913, about hundred years ago. Um, and it started in the 1400s. I'm sorry, let's continue.
1: 1492, Jews expelled from Spain, the Inquisition. That's right. 1496, the Jews were expelled from Portugal. 1500s, mm-hmm. the Maranos were burned in Mexico, Portugal, Peru, and Spain. Right,
0: the Maranos were the Jews who were trying to hide their Judaism, by acting as non-Jews on the outside, but inside they still kept the Judaism. They were not just murdered and burned, but they were tortured. The, one of the methods that the Inquisitors invented is this uh, wheel of torture. Where they would uh, attach a Jew or a Murano to a wheel and then spin the wheel around, and at the same time have flames under the wheel so that each time he would be spinned around, he would be burnt. That's how they burned that. But in the most atrocious ways. Let's continue. Go ahead. In
1: 1553, the Talmud is burned in Italy. Right,
0: where the first Jewish ghetto was. It was created in the Venice. beginning of the 1500s. In Venice. Venice. That's Venice. right. Venice. Exactly, and that's where the Talmud was burnt in that first Jewish ghetto. Let's go, continue.
1: Uh, and ghetto doesn't mean what we, uh, what we think of ghetto as uh, today, does it? No, no it's, it's almost like the ghettos of the
0: Holocaust, yeah, more or less. I mean, it's where Jews were enclosed in one specific territory, and that's where they could live. They couldn't live anywhere else. But, but you mean it's not the ghettos that we think of today. No, the word
1: that ghetto had something to do with the factory, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yes, yes, yes,
0: yes, 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 yes. Not in that sense. Yeah, I see okay. what you
1: mean. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, 1648 to 66, the Cossacks, mm-hmm. Poles, Russians, and Swedes massacre the Jews. Right. 1862, General Ulysses S. Grant expels the Jews from Tennessee. I right. knew that. Okay. Knew that. They let my son in today, though. 1882 pogroms are in russia right 1930s to 40s official canadian reply to most jewish pleas for refuge unfortunately though we greatly sympathize with your circumstance at present you cannot be admitted please try some other country
0: right jews who were trying to flee europe obviously were refused they were refused not just in canada but in many other places in the world Uh, most jews ended up uh, either in Palestine or they fled through Shanghai. Shanghai, they gave uh, visas to Jews, and from there they went on to Australia and other places. But let's continue, okay? Why well, you just
3: limit that to Canada?
0: No, that's true. That's true. But Canada no, was… We were
3: anti-Semitic here. Every, every country. Had that whole thing with Roosevelt. State right. Department.
0: You're right. You're right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have because Canada has been good to Israel thus far. I don't know what uh, the new prime minister will mean do. not to argue with you. But, okay, all right. <laughs>
1: 1939 to 45, six million Jews are annihilated across Europe. Right. Babies okay. serve as target practice. Women are human guinea pigs for doctors and scientists. Yeah. Beards are torn from men's faces.
0: Right, and other atrocities. Okay, we won't go into details, we all
1: know that. 1948 to 67, the Arab nations launched attacks to annihilate the state of Israel. Fearing for their lives, Jews flee Algeria, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Egypt. Right. And in 1917 through 91, the study of Hebrew is a crime against the state in the Soviet Union.
0: Right, and in many other instances, uh, for example, uh, the elders of Zion, and that that accusation, uh, Mein Kampf, that spread quite widely and other books that uh, depict the Jews as uh, worse than animals. Um, now, the big question is, of course, why? Why anti-Semitism and uh, why, why this hatred towards the Jew? I mean, everyone asks this question. And Amos Oz, to try and tackle this question, he uh, said it quite beautifully. He said it's something I don't understand because in the 1930s, let's continue. Good, let's continue. In each
3: and every generation, they rise against us to destroy us. Yeah. And the
0: Holy One. And the Holy
3: One, blessed be. He rescues us from their hands. Right. Have non-Jews really tried to destroy us in every generation?
0: Have they? And uh, I think, again, so let's continue just to this quote that I wanted to uh, bring. Amos Oz, speaking about this anti-Semitism, doesn't make sense. This is what he says. Amos Oz is a celebrated Israeli author. Must be in his 80s today, but uh, he's truly one of the most prominent ones. Uh, let's go. What does he say? It, in, 19, in the 1930s, our enemies said, Jews to Palestine.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Now they say, Jews out of Palestine. They don't want us to be here.
0: They don't want us to be there. They don't want us to be. To be. <laughs> well said. Now, in each and every generation, we're about to say there's some Passover. They want to annihilate us. But why? Why? Does anyone here... Have a theory, before we move forward. Yes?
3: A possible theory is that we were always, in spite of all the restrictions on Jews, Jews were always successful, especially in in the modern age, especially in Europe in the 1900s, 1920s, 1930s. And I think the non-Jews were jealous and, And did not like the fact that these Jews were were successful educationally. They were the first um, organization, the first
0: religion that were able to read and write and all that. Right. That's a a good point. That's a good point. Even though there were times in history where we were poor in the Middle Ages, I think we were very poor, and they still hated us. But it's true. There might, uh, might be an element of that. Yes.
3: I think the common denominator is we were different.
0: Okay. People
1: don't like other people who are different, and you can look at different groups throughout history who were different, that, that were preyed upon. So
0: then if that's the case, why so much focus on the Jew? and many people that are different, many minorities that are different. Because we weren't
3: eliminated each time they tried to eliminate us. So another group came in <laughs> and see. said we were different. <laughs> okay.
0: okay, I understand. So there's a history of this hatred, and that, that kept repeating itself. Okay, yes?
5: Well, in Christianity, up, up until very recent times, we were uh, blamed for um, deicide. Uh, we, sorry? Deicide. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And so it was, and the degree to which Christianity dominated Europe mm-hmm. for millennia. Right. Um, established us as not only the other, but uh, the guilty
0: other. Right. And why would they do that? Because we kill Jesus?
5: Why? Why would they... Well that was... Oh, so they say,
0: of course we do, <laughs> but... Uh, so well, they, I think it started early on yeah.
5: with... Uh, um, um, what's his name? Constantine. Mm-hmm. Um, and early Christianity, which was rivaling uh, of Judaism. And when the Roman Empire adopted Christianity... Right. Um, they continued the rivalry and they, they made more and more of a distinction that sort of Old Testament, New Testament, you know, that they are the legitimate religion. Huh. It's really continuing to fight um, the
0: legitimacy of right. Judaism. Right, I understand. Okay, good point, good point. Anyone else? Yes, Maya, they will take you down. Yes.
2: And if every generation is the same thing in a different costume, but um, they found a scapegoat and mostly it was to explain power, like the black, uh, the Black uh, okay. Plague, uh, they need to have a reason, so let's uh, have the Jews. To make because themselves powerful. To, yes. So to, to step to on someone else to make someone else powerful. wanted to understand that yes, that's because of the Jews. That's and sense. that made sense for a lot of people. Okay,
0: okay. It reminds me of it what… made sense. Uh, my teacher once told me that there are two ways to be great. One way is simply to work hard on yourself. The other way is to step on others and then you're on top of that person. <laughs> Not for so <laughs> it's, it's I suggest you choose human. the former. For <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. Okay, fine. I understand. Yes, Diana. What yeah, you
6: I, I once did a class on, on this, and uh, I had to write a paper. And at the same time, I hurt my back really bad, and I was in bed for three weeks, and I read 29 books that I thought I was going to skim through and pull a few things out get away with murder on the paper mm-hmm. because i didn't like that it's a hard topic.
7: Right. I read
6: 29 books and i if, until a minute ago i had no answer even after reading all those books i got an a on the paper. Ooh. Okay. All of a sudden an idea came to me is it because we're so small that we can be easily picked on in terms of percentage
0: the in the world.
6: We're, we're visible, no but we're small know. enough that we can't have enough power. It's okay. just, you know,
0: okay. another idea. Right, right, right. Okay, go ahead. When yes. have we fought back? Sorry? Whenever we fought back, the Maccabees fought back. We're going to talk about one of those resp- responses, yes. <laughs> uh, Whenever we fought back, the Maccabees fought back, the Warsaw Ghetto fought back. Exactly. Uh, there are instances like that in history, but it's true. Very often we did not. I don't know. Now, can you blame the Jews who did not fight back? I don't think so. Uh, they, were, they weren't in a position to fight back very often. Um, but, okay, we'll talk about the responses to anti Semitism. Yes, Ori, one more.
6: I was just going to say I heard Carolyn um, give a talk about the roots of anti Semitism, yeah. and she explained it that um, Jews who have a uh, Focused to live their life according to the Torah are never going to be subservient to a government or a, uh, a centralized power. Okay. And people in power feel threatened that Jews live by another code.
0: Well, that's the same for Christians. They also live by different power. Same for Muslims. Same for other religions, no? Then you've uh, wider focus on the Jew. But that's okay. I understand maybe the Jew has... More differences in his theology than other religions. Okay, all right. Well, I'll share with you what the Talmud has to say about this. And again, feel free to disagree with this. But I, I uh, attach a lot of truth to this uh, s- statement from the Talmud. And uh, it's well developed by Rabbi Ari Kaplan, who was a brilliant Kabbalist and, and thinker. He uh, passed away about uh, 30 years ago. But the Talmud says as follows Who wants to read the next reference? here. Yeah. I think. Right, the right. Hebrew
7: pronunciation of Sinai is almost identical to the Hebrew word for hatred. sinat. Right. Why was the Torah given on a mountain called Sinai? Asked the Talmud. Because the great sinat, the right. tremendous hatred amid the Jews, emanates from Sinai. Right. When did
0: anti-Semitism begin? <coughs> when it truly began? On Mount Sinai. From Mount Sinai onwards. Why? On Mount Sinai, we received the Torah. The Torah that became our compass, our moral compass for life. And the Jews, uh, sorry, the, the non-Jews or the anti-Semites, not the non-Jews, the anti-Semites didn't like that. They said, who's the Jew to walk around if he, as if he has the moral upper hand? From Sinai, and that's the play of words that Tom would make here. From Sinai came Sina, which is the same word. Not exactly because the sin is transformed into a summit. But still the same pronunciation, the same word. From Sinai came Sina, which means from Sinai. Mount came sinah, came hatred. Why? Because from Sinai, we started walking around with a flag of morality, saying this is the way we live our lives, and this is the way the world should live its life. And people were slightly bothered by that. You're not going to tell me how to live. You're not going to tell me what morality is all about. You're not going to tell me to honor my parents and to not steal and to not kill. If that's what my nation is based on, continue to do that. They were slightly disturbed. And from that disturbance, hatred emerged. Rabbi Ira Kaplan, who's, again, was one one of the great thinkers, he has over 40 books on Jewish thought. Um, um, He passed away at a very young age, at the age of 44. And one wonders when he had time to write so many books and, and so many brilliant books. But this is what this is how he develops this idea that comes from the tunnel. He wants to read the next reference. Go ahead. Okay. That's okay. It. Yes.
4: Say you were given an island inhabited by several belligerent tribes where there is much suffering caused by war, poverty, and prejudice. <coughs> Your assignment is to play God and improve the society, teaching its members to live together in harmony, thereby reducing or eliminating suffering. You will achieve this by deploying a group of undercover infiltrators to achieve the divine goal without revealing your identity. These infiltrators would always be in a position of great peril.
0: Right. Go, continue, continue. Okay.
4: Operating on a different value system, they would always be considered outsiders. The more their message diverged from that of the majority, the more they would be resented. Scattered throughout the island to spread their message, they would very likely become a persecuted minority.
0: Right. V- very often, kids don't like the best student in the class. <laughs> they don't like them. They, why? They may be slightly jealous of that uh, student, and maybe because he's setting the bar too high now for the rest of the kids. You see, if he wasn't in the class, then we could all be average students. But now that he's in the class, the teacher expects us to be like him. And that's more or less what is happening To the Jew throughout history, the Jew supposedly has this Sinai, this Torah from Sinai, this compass that surpasses maybe other moral compasses of the world, and the world is not happy. Jew, get out of here. We want to live our lives comfortably, we want to remain uh, with our moralities or with our non moralities. Don't tell us what to do. So that's the root of anti-Semitism as explained in the Talmud. If you agree with that or not, then uh, uh, it's it's really up to you and I'd love to hear differences of opinions. Yes.
3: I guess just like you questioned when we all gave our opinion, you said, but what about the Christians, what about the Muslims? I'd say the same thing right here. Right. The Christians had a moral code, they were different, they were spreading their Talmud, the Muslims... We're doing that and, and spreading it. So,
0: why were, why wasn't there anti That's a good point, them? but let's not forget that Christianity came came from Judaism. Sinai so right. was a thousand years before Christianity. <laughs> right. So, uh, and then, I think then people when the Christians know that. came, why weren't they persecuted? Or
3: they why aren't they still were. persecuted, you know, as the Jews
0: or, are? Right, because the Jews are the root of that religion. Uh, you can say, you can hold that argument uh, for. Islam, which is very different, it's not a Judeo-Christian based religion. Um, But then, uh, you know, Islam can explain for itself. It was persecuted, in fact. And we're not the only nation that was persecuted. I just met yesterday, I actually was in the bank, and uh, I met a a lady who belongs to the Baha'i Faith. if you've heard of the Baha'i Faith from Iran. In Iran, they're more persecuted than the Jews themselves. So, there were other minorities who were persecuted. But the Jew has always been the target of society to our generations. Again, based on what the Talmud says, it's because we are carrying this flag. Now, um, you can agree with that or not, but I I, I do think that um, this idea of the Jew being a light unto the nation is accurate in the sense that we have to be a light. A light. I think Isaiah chose that word very carefully. See as opposed to being a flag of morality upon the nation, for example. Why? Because what a light does is that it brightens the world. It doesn't come to disturb you, it comes to illuminate you. If the Jews were truly a light unto the nations, we could, anti-Semitism wouldn't be eradicated, but it could be perhaps minimized based on this thought. If we were truly bringing light unto others, people would appreciate that more then more times than not. So maybe the Talmud is also saying, beyond what it is saying here literally, it is also saying, well maybe we should live up to what we are supposed to be, a light. Eliminate others. This is what we received on Sinai, and when we truly <coughs> eliminate others they'll respond with love. Yes? How do you explain J Street?
4: <laughs>
3: you repeat the question?
0: How do you <laughs> explain J explain Street? <laughs> How do I explain J Street? <laughs> Boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I'm I, not going to uh, speak on behalf of... Um, uh, look, I, I think J, J Street is an organization, everyone is familiar with J Street is an organization that supposedly uh, uh, supports Israel, yet it supports BDS and it supports other uh, despicable organizations. Yes?
5: I'm a member of J Street. J Street does not support BDS. It doesn't?
0: J Street
5: vehemently opposes BDS. Oh. That's one of the purposes of J Street, is to oppose
0: BDS. BDS. Okay, because I just... Uh, fine, so I take back my words. I was just speaking to someone, I assume, who's fighting BDS and he has a problem with J Street because they're not joining hands to fight BDS if they do believe that it has some value. Okay, so I'm taking my words back. Take my words back if that's the case. But uh, they do other things that... Um, are not necessarily seen as pro-Israel. Let me put it this way, they take stances that go against the the stances of the Israeli government. For example, the Iran deal. The Iran deal they were for, the Israeli government obviously was very much against. So they they don't support the government of Israel even though they uh, are supposedly for Israel. uh, Now you can say the government of Israel is not always for Israel itself, that's a separate opinion. How do I explain J Street? (laughs) He's a member of J Street, why don't you ask him? We can talk about it later. Talk about it later. Look, I am, though, of the opinion that the Israeli government, only Israelis can speak for themselves and on behalf of themselves. I'm not going to walk into your home and tell you how to run your home. That's unfair. If the Israeli government doesn't think the Iran deal is a good deal, I think they know what they are saying. And I'm of the opinion that we should support Israel for what it is, for what it says. Because they know best. It's their hope. We live outside of Israel. We could be Jews, but we still live outside of Israel. So how to explain Jews that don't agree with the government of Israel and sometimes even go against it? You'll have to ask them. I'm, I'm uh, not in that camp. Yes?
6: How does the Talmud um, explanation um, line up with the slavery that existed in Egypt beforehand?
0: Oh, that's a good question. What was it? That's a, an excellent question. You see, uh, one, excellent question. How does this statement from the Talmud speak of the anti-Semitism that existed in Egypt before Sinai? Right? That's an excellent question. So you can say, the Talmud can say that before Sinai, we weren't really a nation. And that's why the anti-Semitism that is directed towards the nation can only be spoken of from Sinai onward. Why weren't we a nation before Sinai? Actually, the Torah says so. Pharaoh calls us a nation; that's true, but we don't call ourselves a nation, until Mount Sinai. I think there's a brilliant message here: that to become a nation, to have that medal, called a nation, you have to work for it. You can't just, uh, you know, go to the store and buy that medal. You have to earn it. It took us a long time to earn that medal. So for 210 years, we were slaves. We persisted. Then we committed to God on Mount Sinai, we said, now nah, seven ishma, we will do it, we will listen, so God said, nah, okay, fine, now you're that nation, that metal called nation, I'll, I'll call you a nation. So, we were called a nation by God, and we called, Moses called us a nation, only from Mount Sinai onwards. I think the Talmud is speaking about anti-Semitism that's directed towards the nation itself, and that's why it, it starts there in history. But in any case, that's what the Talmud says, that's the root of anti-Semitism based on the Talmud, and in fact, I found a fascinating quote in a book uh, on Adolf Hitler, where he himself admits that this is the root of anti-Semitism, exactly what the Talmud says. He wasn't aware, I don't think at least he was aware of what the Talmud says, but yet he says the same thing. This is what he said based on this book. Uh,
1: who's, uh, Who's next? Go ahead, please. Adolf Hitler once revealed, conscience is a Jewish invention like circumcision. My task is to free men from the dirty and degrading ideas of conscience and morality." Right.
0: Conscience is a Jewish invention. That's a powerful statement made by who? Adolf Hitler himself. Uh, He wants to fight that Jewish conscience. He's bothered deeply by that conscience. He uh, formulates the final solution to fight against this uh, conscience or this invention. But maybe, maybe the Talmud is right. If our enemy is saying so, maybe the Talmud has some merit, but uh, haven't spoken about the root of anti-Semitism. And again, if you can agree with it or not. I do want to see how we've responded to anti-Semitism throughout the ages, and how, in particular, today we are responding to anti-Semitism. This again, this new type of anti-Semitism. That's a national uh, anti-Semitism that takes the disguise of Israel and Zionism but its hatred is as passionate and as powerful as ever before. How have we responded to anti-Semitism? I think that there have been, in general, three responses throughout history. And even today, there are three responses to anti-Semitism. One response is quite astonishing, but beforehand, I want to quote a midrash that I think hints to those three responses that will come one day. A midrash that speaks of perhaps the first anti-Semitic act in history, And that's when, uh, or that's reported in the Torah, not in history, but that's reported in the Torah. And that's when Moses, if you remember the biblical scene, Moses is going out to the streets of Egypt now as a royal prince, and he sees an Egyptian hitting a Jew. Do you remember that scene? Mm -hmm. What does he do? He looks around, (laughs) make sure no one's looking at him. And then he hits the Egyptian and kills him on the spot. The next day, that's not what the Midrash is about, but the next day he sees two Jews fighting, and one of them says, Hey, 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 who are you to get involved? Are you gonna kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? How did they know? <coughs> Moses looked everywhere. How did they know? How do you think they knew? No one was looking at him. How did they know?
2: He buried, <laughs> he buried the Egyptian.
0: He buried the Egyptian. That's it. No one knew. How did they know? They weren't well, any video have cameras have told, then? must have told somebody. <laughs> must have uh, uh, Moses must have told somebody? I think the answer is simpler. The Jew that he saved is the one who went and told everybody. Uh, yeah. That's how ungrateful he was. When Moses saw that, he may have said, maybe they do deserve slavery.
4: <laughs> this is
0: the type of nation I'm trying to save here. And he ran away to Midian. He ran away to Midian after that. But... Uh, that's what probably happened. But that's the first act of anti-Semitism that's reported in the Torah. Now, how did Moses kill this Egyptian? Was he a martial arts expert? How did he kill him? And the Midrash proposes yet three answers, which I believe stand for three responses to anti-Semitism that we found over <coughs> the ages. Uh, let's read the Midrash, let's read the Midrash, let's go. Uh, how did, did Moses, did
3: rabbi Shemot one. Yeah. how did Moses kill the Egyptian? Rabbi Aviatar says, with his fist. Others say, with a shovel of cement. The rabbi say, he mentioned the ineffable and mystical name of God, and that is how he killed him.
8: Okay, three opinions. One says with his
0: fist, the other says with a shovel of cement, and it was probably there by the slave, by the Jewish slave, who was using a shovel to do his work. And the rabbi said, he mentioned, the Holy Name of God, which is known as the Shema Mephorosh, and uh, that's how he killed him, magically, uh, that name killed him, like some mystical power. But these are the three different opinions. I think that these three opinions, again, represent the three types of responses we've found throughout history on how to combat the Egyptian, how to combat uh, anti-Semites. The first response we've often found that he killed him with a fist. What does that mean? Some Jews will tell you the best response to anti-semitism is with the fist. The Warsaw Ghetto, the Maccabees, the IDF, and uh, other means of force that really embody the Jewish power. Okay, there's a great story that was told by Arish who's also an author uh, and also a journalist for Haaretz in Israel. And he tells this uh, story, we can uh, read it, I think it's a very moving story uh, that speaks of this fest, this fest that was used in order to show the victory of the Jews over the anti-Semitism experience in some of them, one of the darkest places in Jewish history, at Auschwitz. Okay, let's read the story quickly. Who's next? Go ahead.
7: It happened seven years ago in April 2003, but for me it will be a moment to remember More than half a century after his grandmother was killed at Auschwitz, Israeli Brigadier General Amir Eshel flew over the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp in an F-15 fighter jet, despite great opposition from the Auschwitz authorities. Two other Israeli aircraft, also piloted by descendants of Holocaust survivors, took part in the flyover, timed to coincide with a ceremony at Birkenau with 200 Israeli soldiers. As they stood at attention, despite the heavy cloud cover, the soldiers on the ground could reportedly see the blue star of David painted on the bottom of the plains.
0: Purposely painted, of course, so that they could see it. Okay, continue. On
7: the site where close to two million Jews were slaughtered during World War II and over the objections of the National Museum of Auschwitz-Birkenau, the Polish institution located at the camps, the Israelis decided they need to do it just to make a statement. It's a cemetery, a place of silence and concentration, said museum spokeswoman Jaroslaw Mensfeld. Flying the F-15s is a demonstration of military might, which is an entirely inappropriate way to commemorate the victims. Really, Mrs. Mensfeld? a place of silence? One million <laughs> children were screaming in these gas chambers, holding onto their mother's helpless arms as they cried and begged for oxygen. Is this your definition of silence? Look at the scratches at the ceilings of the gas chambers, demonstrating the agony of the victims during their final moments.
0: Right. A response of power, a response, a moving response of might, not just by having the F-15s fly over Auschwitz, but also just by his mere response to this. This is uh, uh, Mansfeld. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, it speaks for itself, but that was one response. That our history, we've said, well, we need a fight. Sometimes it worked for us. The history of Hanukkah is, uh, uh, you know, a good, a good example of that. history of Purim that's coming up also included fight. We don't speak about this a little bit. But the Jews went out to the streets with the permission of a Achashverosh. That's correct. To uh, kill anyone who wanted to exterminate
3: them, yes. So why, at least in some circles, is Hanukkah denigrated to
0: a second-class holiday when we ought to be celebrating that we're not going to take it anymore? I don't know if it's such a second-class holiday. I don't don't think it is either. I think actually Hanukkah is, the, if I'm not mistaken, it's the third most celebrated holiday in America. Passover is first, Yom Kippur is second, and Hanukkah is third. Is that because <laughs> <of it's>
1: Christmas? <laughs> I think it's timing too, thanks to Christmas, baby.
0: <laughs> but uh, no, I think Shavuot is the most downgraded holiday, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, it's a biblical holiday. Hanukkah is a biblical holiday. Shavuot is a bit, but it's barely celebrated here. Uh, so Hanukkah, I think, is quite celebrated. But we have examples like that in history. I'm not saying it's a wrong wrong reaction, it's a wrong response. We see that in Psalms by King David himself, who speaks of God's mighty hand and uh, His outstretched arm. They came to the rescue of the Jewish people, maybe hinting to the effectiveness of this outstretched arm and this mighty hand. Fine. That's one response that reminds me of a, a, a beautiful story about the founder of the Hasidic movement, the Baal Shem Tov, who once had a dream. In his dream, he saw uh, his neighbor in paradise. And uh, was told, he was told that this neighbor actually lives not too far away from him. It's a butcher in this, in this town. When he awoke, the Baal Shem Tov said, I have to go meet my neighbor in paradise. I have to see if there's anything special in him. He traveled with some of his students and he said to them, Look, don't act, act like you're normal people here. We're just going to observe this butcher. I want to see if there's anything special about him. He observed this butcher from morning to evening and he didn't find anything special in him. In fact, the only thing that this butcher had that was exceptional was that he did not stop eating all the time. (laughs) From morning to evening he would eat and eat and eat and eat. At night he stayed up to observe. He says, maybe at night he uh, wakes up, takes out a book, studies all night, who knows what, meditate. Nothing. He stayed there for three days. There was nothing special about this butcher. All he did was eat. So at the end of three days, and after three days, he approaches the butcher and he says, Look, I have to tell you the real reason why I'm here. I'm here to spy on you. I dreamt that you are my neighbor in paradise. Can you tell me, is there any special deed you've ever done? Is there anything special about you, about your life? The butcher says, No, I don't know why you came to see me. This is really nothing special. He says, Come on, there must be something. Nothing special. You saw me for three days, and nothing special, but I love to eat. Bajanta says, uh oh, maybe why? Why do you eat all the time? Maybe that's something special. The butcher says, You want know, to the real reason I eat all the time? Because of my father. What's the story? He says, Well, my father was also a butcher, but he was very, very thin. One day the Cossacks came into town. They kidnapped my father. I followed Cossacks and my father as a young child to see what would happen to him. And then they simply burnt him alive in the middle of the forest. My father, as I told you, was a very thin man when he burned. His fire was very small. And it died down after a few moments. I eat all the time because if the Cossacks ever come again to get me, I want this fire to illuminate the world. I want everyone to see it. That's why I eat all the time. Baal Shem Tov says, oh, now I understand why you're so special. That's why you'll be my neighbor in paradise. But um, there's, there's some uh, truth to this type of response. You fight back with your body, this is how I'm going to get there. And uh, it's been certainly a response through, that we've seen throughout our history. Response number 2 is hinted in the second answer of the Midrash and that's the shovel. We've said no, we might not find, but let's build edifices around the world with our names all over them so that they will know who the Jew is. They will know that the Jew is in their face and that he's immortal. So whichever hospital you go to, whichever cancer research uh, center you go to, You'll find a Mr. Rosenfeld, or Mr. Greenberg, or Mr. Uh, Goldberg, or something like that. Why? Maybe it comes from that motive, from that desire. You know what? We'll build buildings, we'll put our names on those buildings, for the world to finally respect the Jew, and for this anti-Semitism to be completely squashed. That's been a response. In America, by the way, there are about, if I'm not mistaken, 380 JCCs to date. Quite a number, 380 JCCs, many other Jewish buildings and institutions. And that's been the response of the shovel. If you ask any Jew if he's familiar with this phrase, he'll tell you yes, of course. It's on the uh, gates of almost every synagogue and every JCC. But this is a phrase from the Talmud that's become quite common. Uh, Let's read it. Who's next? Steve, go ahead. Uh As my forefathers
3: planted them for me, so I plant them for
0: my children. Right, have you heard that phrase before? Let's plant, let's build, let's make sure that we leave something here on this world, in this world, that uh, stays for generations to come. Uh, Nobel,
8: Nobel Prizes. Nobel Prizes. That's it's not uh, physical building, but it's... It's not physical,
0: that's, that's a good point. Not physical buildings, But yeah, we have an incredible number of Jews on that list. Every Passover I go to, there's always this uh, Uncle Harry that uh, has to remind you, Oh, you know how many Jews? Oh, I'm <laughs> But, uh, it's something we say proudly, but it's true. I mean, I-, I think also that's because we've come to realize that our worth is in our giving. There's something very powerful about this. Our worth has always been in our giving. Not in who we are, not even in what we think, certainly not in what we eat, but uh, in what we give. You are what you give. There's a great um, American painter from the 19th century. Uh, His last name is Watts, his first name, Watts. But he has a painting about uh, a deceased man. You don't really see the man in the painting, but you do see the shroud covering him uh, and uh, as he's lying on the table. The painting is called So passes the glory of the world. It's in Italian. So passes the glory of the world. And at the very top of the painting, there's a beautiful statement that I think every Jew should remember. That statement says as follows, and it's obviously obviously a statement about the dead man that uh, the, the, the painting shows. The statement says this. What I spent... I had. What I kept, I lost. Now. What I gave, I have. Okay. What I spent, I had, I spent it, I had it. Goodbye. <laughs> what I uh, what I kept, anything that I kept, now it's not coming up with me to the heavens. I lost. But what I gave, I have. What I gave will always remain there. It will be my impact on the world that will remain to eternity. It's there, forever, for generations to come. Yes?
5: That's interesting because it's very, very consistent with the latest findings in um, psychology. Mm. What makes people happy. The mm. uh, question has always been, does money make people happy? Oh, and it turns out, money, if you, it depends on how you use it. Right. If you use it just to buy things, it does not make you happy. If you use it to give to others, it makes you happy.
0: Excellent. I love it. Very good. Very Should good. Catch mm-hmm. up to the Be- no, very good. <laughs> my rabbi always says, <coughs> uh, and I quote him again and again, I'm sorry, but uh, I, uh, it's my, my uh, hero, uh, Adin Steinsatz, a world scholar. Uh, he says that you only, tr- truly you, hmm. you only truly own what you give. You only truly own what you give. What you give again remains in the hearts of people. There's a fascinating expression in the Bible that we find time and time again uh, that comes to describe the passing of the righteous. Doesn't say and they died, doesn't say Abraham died, Sarah died. What it says is and they expired and they gathered unto the nation. What does that mean? It means that the righteous don't die. They don't wind up in the ground. They wind up in people, in the people that they gave to, that they impacted. That's where they wind up and therefore they are already always alive. They gave. And they, what they gave, they have. They have forever. They wind up in people. People don't wind up in the ground. People who give wind up in people. Yes?
2: I just have a problem with that because uh, we lost. Uh, We we gave we leave the spiritual heritage the Ten Commandments the Bible whatever you want but we lost we're losing why because our numbers are going down the six millions are gone they're gone those who were butchered those they Spain when they expelled people and tortured people we're gone they're gone how many more could have been lived if it didn't happen if I'm not we can't say if. Look, but I'm gonna... I see our numbers shrinking. Yeah. If it wasn't for the state of Israel, we, I'm surprised there's still Jewish people in the world. It's just generation after generation that after us, Iran can eliminate Israel just like that with a nuclear power if they want. There's not gonna be Israel, what are we gonna do? It's just, I don't see anything winning here. We're not winning.
0: So do you know what the oldest… How do
2: we fight it? Yes, spiritually. You don't fight evil with the evil, God forbid. <coughs> but, but I see it as a lost war. It's scary but that's what, it, that's what I see.
0: So do you know what the oldest uh, monument that speaks of Jews is in the world today? It's called the Namaste Stele. It's an Egyptian Stele, uh, pillar. And on it it says the Jews are no more. (laughs) When was it written? 8th century BCE. Are the Jews no more? (laughs) No, look, we're studying Torah, how beautiful this is. It's true, the numbers have never been on our side. But I want to be optimistic. I think that, uh, first of all, I have eight children. So I'm doing my part in that. (laughs) The Pew study didn't count my children's. Uh, (laughs) I think we're all doing our part in that by being here tonight. And I think that there are things that simply cannot be measured scientifically that will uh, define all of those scientific predictions, uh, as we've defined them time and time again in history. Uh, But to go back to my initial point about giving, I'll prove you wrong by simply asking you to do a little exercise tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, go out to the street. It doesn't have to be in the street because it will look uh, quite awkward here in Scottsdale. Go out to the supermarket, to the gas station, somewhere where people gather anyway. In New York you can go out to the street. Here it's a little bit different. And then ask an average non-Jew, how many Jews does he think there are in the world? Mm-hmm. You know what he'll tell you? I've tried that many times. 42. Uh, I've received answers between 100 million to 500 million. How many Jews are there in the world? About 13.5 million today. That's the number. Now, why Why do they think that there's so many? You know why? We give so much. We give intellectually. We give uh, philanthropically. We give given so many areas. I think that giving in and of itself will ensure that we don't wind up in the ground, but we'll wind up in people for generations to come. We always punch above our weight.
3: Sorry? We punch above our weight. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> I, I hope you don't correct them when they say... Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: because that's, that's a great myth to keep on going. <laughs> that's true. You know, it's fascinating. There's, a, there's an American author by the name of Milton Himmelfarb, uh, American Jewish author. And he writes that the number of Jews in the world is smaller than the statistical error in the Chinese census. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't tell them that. You're right, I shouldn't tell them that. <laughs> but I uh, do think that because of this power of giving, because of our dedication here tonight, the dedication of Jews who continue to adhere to the heritage and to their traditions, we will defy those predictions. But that's response number two. Response number three. Let's, uh, these two references, for some reason, were left from uh, last week. I'm sorry. Response number three is the voice, that uh, third opinion of the Midrash, the voice. Some Jews have responded, throughout generations, have responded to anti-Semitism by saying, no, the task of the Jew is to work on his voice of Torah. The often quote that biblical voice, uh, that biblical verse, sorry, that speaks of the blessing that Jacob took from his brother Esau. Remember that biblical story? He disguised himself as Esau. Went to steal the blessing and act as if he's Esau so that he can receive it. And uh, Isaac, the father, doesn't know what's happening. He says, boy, the clothes are like, they feel like Esau. But your voice sounds like Jacob. And that's exactly what he says. The voice is the voice of Jacob. I'm not standing you. And the hand is the hand of Esau. But then finally Isaac gives the blessing, he's convinced that it must be Esau. Now, many have used this verse to say, you see, the voice is the voice of Jacob. The hands can be the hands of Esau, the, you know, uh, uh, more aggressive approaches in the world should be adopted by other nations. Jews are more refined, Jews should focus their energy on studying. (laughs) on the voice, on the voice of God, on perpetuating the voice of God in the world. And they'll also often quote this famous uh, uh, verse from Zechariah that says this, who's next? Let's go. So he said to me, this is the worst of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by
3: my spirit, says God Almighty. Right, not by might,
0: nor by power, By my spirit. They'll also quote the famous episode about Elijah the prophet. I'm sure you know it. Where uh, he ran away from God. And then God came to appear himself to Elijah as he's hiding in the mountains. And there's a big storm. He says, no, the voice of God is not in the storm. There's a big fire. The voice of God is not in the fire. Where is the voice of God? In that small, still voice. That's where God is. God is in the voice. There's a lot of truth to that. The Torah is no doubt the voice of God. And the one, people who learn Torah, dedicate themselves to learning Torah, are people who are dedicating themselves not just to listening to the voice of God, but hopefully also to speaking the voice of God after listening to it. Fine. You find people like that in Nebra. You find people like that in Williamsburg. You find people like that in Borah Park, you find people like that in Jerusalem where they say, you know, we're not going to work, we're going to dedicate our lives to learning Torah, it's the voice. That's our best weapon against the world, against anti-Semitism in the world. Now I'm, I'm, I'm going to the extreme, yes, uh, we find people like that, like you, tonight, we're learning the voice of God, we're not, you know, dedicating our entire day, we have to make a living at the end of the day, but we're not dedicating our entire day, but so, so we have parts of our lives that are dedicated to the voice of God. But some people say, no, not just parts, we're going to dedicate entire lives to the voice of God. That will be the best weapon. There's a beautiful matrix that speaks about the death of King David. King David had asked God, almost with chutzpah, to uh, tell him when he will die. Does anyone here in this room want to know when he will die? I'd like For me I'd like it to be a surprise.
5: <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Woody Allen says, I don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you very there. much. Exactly. <laughs> I can to be a surprise. Uh, I don't want to be dead. Uh, yeah, I think he says, he says, uh, I want to experience immortality. Immor- yeah, uh, something yeah, he about immortality. I don't immortality. want to be
8: immortal through my work. I want to be immortal Mortal through not through, dying. Exactly, <laughs> to not dying. Thank you very
0: much. <laughs> Thank you. Very good. Which reminds me of the story about this woman who uh, was run over by a truck and... Uh, <laughs> She goes up to the heavens and God says to her, you know what, don't worry, you're not going to die. I'm coming, you're going to go right back, you're going to recover from this and you're going to live at least another 40 years. She wakes up, she recovers, she remembers the dream, I'm going to live another 40 years, she says, I better live it well. She, the first stop is uh, to go over to a plastic surgeon and say, welcome me a little bit and let me live uh, my life fully and he walks on and not just a little bit but a lot. She comes out of the office, another truck comes by and runs her over and this time she dies. She goes up to the heavens and says, God, you promised me another 40 years. God says, oops, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize you. (laughs) (laughs) But in any case, in any case, I'd like it to be a surprise. King David didn't. Apparently, according to the Talmud, King David wanted to know exactly when he would die. What kept him from dying, or what trick did he try to play to keep him from dying, was well, stunning Torah. Let's read the Talmud. Let's read this uh, passage from the Talmud. Go ahead. Continue. And
8: behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the
0: rocks before no, so, I'm,
1: I'm sorry. The, the, next, the next reference. Babylonian Babylon,
0: Talmud, right. tracted Shabbat 30 AB. Sorry. Go uh,
8: David said before the Holy One, blessed be he, sovereign of the universe, Lord... Make me to know my end. Right, I want to know my end. I want to know the day of my death. Yes, go ahead. It is, it is a decree before me, he replied he that the end of a mortal is not known, is not made known. And the measure of my days what it is. It is a decree before me that a person's span of life is not made known. Let me know how frail I am, said he to him. Thou wilt die on the Sabbath.
0: Right, he said, I can't tell you what date, but I can tell you what day. You'll die on a Shabbat. So what trick did King David play so that he wouldn't die on the Shabbat? Because he knew that any Shabbat now he could die. So let's go ahead and let's read what he did. Now
8: every Sabbath day he would sit and study all day. On the day that his soul was to be at rest, the angel of death stood before him, but could not prevail against him, because learning did not cease from his mouth. What shall I do to him? said he. Now there was a garden before his house, so the angel of death went. Ascended and slothed in the trees. He, David, went out to see, as he was ascending the ladder, it broke under him. Thereupon he became silent from his study, and his soul had
0: repose." So you, you get it. So, King David said, I'm going to study Torah. I know that that immunes me from death. Torah is more powerful than death. If I study Torah, the death of the uh, God won't be able to, to take my soul. The angel of death came to get him on, on that Shabbat that he was supposed to die, and he couldn't. King David was studying Torah all Shabbat long. So what did he do? He shook the trees. King David stopped uh, uh, his studies for a moment, looked at the trees. That's when the angel of death got him because he wasn't studying Torah at the moment. Fine, that's the Talmud. But what this is saying is basically what this approach is saying, it's the voice. The voice saves us from all the deaths of the world. It's more powerful than it. And if we can focus on the voice, on the voice of the Torah, then uh, anti-Semitism will eventually disappear. Fine. That's a third, that's a third response. I say that with all due respect to each of those three responses, it's about time for the Jewish world to synchronize all three together. We need the fist, we need the shovel, and we need the voice as one. They don't have to be separate. We really need all three. We need a united response. Perhaps this is why Rabbi Soloveitchik, who was uh, the head of the, the founder of Yeshiva University and, and truly a great scholar, also came from Europe, escaped the Holocaust and uh, established himself in Boston. But uh, he has an essay called, called Dodi where which speaks of the destiny of the Jewish people. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a worthwhile read, but this is an excerpt that maybe speaks of this destiny and of this Need to combine the three approaches into one. Let's read the next uh, reference. Maya, continue. Go ahead. The covenant. Okay, okay. the covenant of destiny.
2: Mm-hmm. others do, uh, do to it, but but it ta- uh, the task it has undertaken. The role it has chosen to play in history. The Israelites did not choose to become slaves in Egypt. That was a fate thrust upon them by someone else. They did, however, choose to become God's people at Sinai when they said, we will do and obey destiny this creates our nation. Right.
0: So when we combine the three together, when we combine the three responses together, I think what we'll be doing is doing exactly this. Exactly what Rabbi Soloveitchik is saying this, Because the problem, if, if there is one problem that is common among all three responses, is that we allow ourselves to be defined by the other. The anti-Semite will tell us what we should do. We allow ourselves, we allow our purpose to be defined by the other. Okay, our purpose will will now be the fist. Our purpose will now be the shovel. But one second, we have a purpose that was prescribed for us from the beginning of times. We have to be a holy nation. Yes, we have to have a fist. We have to have a shovel. And we have to have a voice. That's part of our inner purpose. And it shouldn't come just because the other hates us. It should come because of who we truly are. We are the fist, we are the shovel, we are the voice. That's our purpose. We're not just one of them. If we're able to find those three in that purpose that we ought to live, then regardless of what the world will do to us, we'll truly be wholesome, a wholesome nation, we'll be true, we'll be real. I think that what Rabbi Soloveitchik is saying is that, yes, we've, we've allowed ourselves maybe Uh, 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 too much to be sucked by the waves of anti-Semitism. And it's about time the Jew looks inwards. And I truly believe that if we look inwards we'll find those three approaches, not just one of them. The focus on just one is simply because we've allowed ourselves to be defined by others. But if we look inwards again we'll find that there is a Maccabee, we'll find that there is a, a Nobel Prize winner and we'll also find that there is a uh, Jew would pay us learning Torah all day long. You'll be surprised. But there's one like that also in here. But he doesn't have to live separately from the other two. Our purpose is about all three together. And that's the purpose that really is above the definitions that are imposed <coughs> on us by others. Yes?
3: Do you think the Holocaust defined the Jews in the, in the 50s?
2: Or actually up until the 67 war? They were They look like Germans, they behave like Germans, they are assimilated. I think
0: it's defined, you mean the approach of the Jews? You see, I, I, um, look. The Jews defined themselves
3: as the victim, you know, it wasn't this internal, it was, the the Jews let themselves be defined by the Holocaust until the 67
0: war. Uh, Until 67, I think some segments, until today even. But uh, what you're saying, and if I'm understanding right, is that
3: we define ourselves as victims.
0: As victims, right. I think that's the danger in overemphasizing the Holocaust. We should teach the Holocaust. I teach the Holocaust at Pardes. I teach the Holocaust to my children. But to overemphasize it, or sometimes to only speak about the Holocaust, is dangerous. Because it conveys two negative messages that we shouldn't convey to our children. One message is that we're victims, like he's saying, another message is that Judaism is about sadness and persecution. Judaism is about much more than that. It's about joy. It's about life. Those who cleave to God should be alive. So that's the danger in overemphasizing the Holocaust. I think that was your question. I think some segments have that uh, until today, unfortunately. Now, um, I think it ties back to what we said. Exactly. If we allow our own selves to be defined by other uh, outside factors, like the Holocaust then we won't find those three uh, responses combined, we won't find our vocation. We'll actually uh, compartmentalize it terribly. Um, and that's the danger. Yes? Do you think that
5: um, during the civil rights movement yes. in the 60s, Jews were very prominent. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe uh, 40% of the civil rights of the people that went down south in the, in the, uh, in the buses were Jews. Right. Do you think that that is an aspect of the voice, the Jews' prominent role in, in fighting for social justice?
0: Of the voice or of the... I mean, it's a homo- formality. Um, yes. I mean, I'm of the opinion, and that goes back to this also, that I think that every Jew has a soul. Every human being has a soul, but every Jew has a Jewish soul. And uh, if we don't pay attention to it, It will continue to bother us no matter what. It won't shut up, it just won't. (laughs) It will shout and shout and shout until we pay attention to it. Now, some people say, fine, I'll pay attention to you soul, but in the way I want to. So, I'll channel your shout into fighting for the Civil Rights Movement. I'll channel your shout into fighting for uh, something else. I'll channel your shout into doing yoga every day. Now, these could be blessed ways. But as long as we are not truly loyal to the Jewish soul, to the uniqueness of the Jewish soul uh, that we each have, the Jewish soul won't won't be quiet, and its thirst won't be quenched, so to speak. That's why I think we find Jews everywhere, there's that fire within them that that pushes them forward. Now, sometimes um, it's not channeled in the right way by many Jews, I think Karl Marx had the same Jewish soul, but he channeled it towards creating communism, right? I received a letter just a few, few months ago by uh, this woman, just to, to make this point. I, I do want to conclude with, with one more thought, but uh, by this woman who was married to a Jew. She herself was not Jewish, and this Jew was completely not observant in any shape or form. And uh, he married outside the faith, as was obvious by, by uh, her statement and uh, by his marriage to her. And she was asking uh, an interesting question. She was asking to bury him in a Jewish cemetery. He had just died and he wanted to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. And she writes that that was his request just before he passed away. And as a rabbi, she was asking me whether it's permitted or not. So I responded, of course it's permitted. And then I said, look what a tragedy, tragedy of the Jewish soul. It was a man. Perhaps that everything to ignore his Jewish soul. Yet before he dies, his Jewish soul is still speaking to him. Finally, he decides to listen to it. To die as a Jew is easy, but to live as a Jew is difficult. And uh, that Jewish soul has to be listened to when we live, not just when we're dying. And I think that, that is that inner vocation. Yes other things will come and force us to relate to this Jewish soul and sometimes we won't be in sync with it so we'll channel it in a very, very uh, distorted way. But we have to look inwards. Everyone has a Jewish soul and I think also everyone is, is unique, everyone's character is unique. We each have our own personalities. We have to know who we are, what our vocation is. And then define ourselves by that, not just by the outside waves that push us towards our inner soul. Yes
2: special
0: circumstances, why in France the anti-Semitism is on the rise um, it's now? A, it's a, you know, uh, I can give you a five-hour uh, answer to that. I grew okay, up in France. I was born in go France. Go. So I saw the writing on the wall for many years. I think it didn't just erupt now. The writing on the wall was, for, was there for many years as a young boy, a young seven-year-old boy. I remember being called dirty Jew in the park while playing. And then uh, that same uh, 13-year-old boy, must have been 13, 14, who you knows, but he pushed me to the ground, and I used my fist and uh, beat him back and ran away. I don't know what happened then. <laughs> but um, I experienced it then. So was when I was seven, so a long time ago. So <laughs> I'm too old now. Wow. So um, is, it, is it the
2: church? Is it the religion? Is it economic situation? It's not. No, it's I not think like it was...
0: I think when you allow poison when you don't, po- any scientist will tell you, if you don't control uh, poison, if you don't control the Zika virus, immediately as it erupts it's just going to spread. And I think that's what's happened to France. Uh, anyway, anyway, I, I want to conclude just with one uh, last thought. Actually, actually a beautiful story you have just a part of it here. The fifth page was somehow cut off. But this is a story that occurred in 1977, and it speaks to what we just uh, mentioned. In 1977, the UJA, which is a novel organization, um, uh, suggested that all Jews across America, during the Passover Seder, should leave one chair that is empty. Why? I don't know if you remember that. 1977. Why? They said because we have to commemorate those Jews that unfortunately are not with us because they were either butchered by the uh, Nazis or something else happened to them. They became victims of anti-Semitism. Many Jews did that. The late Lubavitcher Rabbi Rabbi Schneerson came out uh, in support of the statement, but he said, I have a little tweak to make to that suggestion. What was it? Instead of having an empty chair on your Passover Seder, have a full chair on the Passover Seder. Invite yet another Jew. Why? Because Judaism is not just about what was, but Judaism is about what is. Judaism is not about what others did to us, but Judaism is about what we do for ourselves. So let's fill this chair, let's invite another Jew. Judaism is about this Jew, it's about the passion that it represents, the zest that we have to have, and the life that we ought to celebrate. That's what Judaism is about. In a way, this summarizes beautifully, I think, what we spoke about. Yes, there's maybe a route to anti-Semitism, as the Talmud said, as Hitler himself confessed. Maybe there is a history to anti-Semitism that is uh, stronger than history itself. And yes, there were three responses, three major responses to anti-Semitism throughout history. But I think it's about time for the Jewish people to stop defining themselves by outside factors, by anti-Semitism itself, and by each time saying, Oh, fine, we'll go with the fist, we'll go with the sho-. No. We have to f- define ourselves by who we truly are, by what God told us that we truly are. We're a holy nation that has the ship, the shovel, that has the fist, that has the voice in you. We don't need to choose one over the other. We have to synchronize the three, Channel our Jewish soul into the best of ways and become truly a light unto the world that illuminates others and uh, the world itself. That's it. I'll uh, take any questions, any further questions, if there are any now. Just a really quick question.
3: I missed last week. Okay. What was part... I figured... I have to come
1: to see. hear no two. No, no I have to come, but no what was
0: problem. part one? Part one was assimilation. We spoke about assimilation last week. That's sort of one of the biggest challenges, no doubt, that we're facing. Uh, I can also, um, into, I can get into, you. Into if inter- you can give me your email address marriage. if I don't have it. But if I, you can give me, I can send you the references.
5: Oh great! That uh, would be great.
0: Those of you who want the give references, the email. give me. Your, yeah, maybe we can pass on a Bringing
2: them next week. Okay. Oh, oh, sorry? Oh, that's true. That's true, I
0: keep forgetting about this, which is good. Um, there's, uh, who has it? Shmuley. Okay, fine, thank you. So you should have the iPod, uh, what is it called? The podcast. The podcast. podcast. Okay. podcast. Okay. The podcast of uh, yeah, last week's class, so you can, you can ask Shmuley about thank it. Thank you. Have, in, in, yes.
2: in practical terms, the, the, the anti-Semitism goes now in France. Yeah. The Jews are leaving. So what are you going to do? Those three things that you just said... They have no power to fight it in the land that's not yet theirs. They go to Israel. Yeah. They come here, thank God, we are blessed in America. They can't fight America. it collectively. They can fight it, uh, I think, individually.
0: I, I have family in France, I have very close family in France. I have the, uncles, aunts, there. cousins. They, many communities have taken an active stance. They have, they, in fact, their own security patrols. They do, uh, they do have a fist element, element to them, no doubt. Uh, and uh, they fight it. You know, um, in, among politicians, through the political uh, uh, channels, it's
2: just ignorance, isn't it? Yeah. On on the non-Jew side, it's just ignorance. It's
8: sad. It's so sad. Yeah.
0: You know, at the end of the day, I know we explain the root of anti-Semitism based on what the Talmud says, but I don't think hatred as reason. Um. The opposite of uh, love. Elie Wiesel says it's not hatred, it's indifference. I would say the opposite of hatred is also indifference. Hatred is a very powerful emotion, so powerful that it defies reason. And so is love. Um, so I don't think we can really attach a reason. We're trying to be intellectual and attach a reason, but you speak about that passionate hatred it doesn't have a reason. Uh, you know, uh, Luciano Pavarotti um, you all know who he was, right? So, he was, he had a beautiful voice, he wasn't the most moral man. He fell in love with his secretary, he was like 20 years younger than him. Um, and he married her. And I once saw an interview of uh, Luciano Pavarotti where the interviewer asks, Pavarotti, <laughs> what happened? Why did you marry your secretary? Do you love her? And he says, yes. Why do you love her? Pavarotti responded beautifully. The act is, but the response is beautiful. He says, if I had a reason why I loved her, it wouldn't be true love. So I have no reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's <good. laughs> true. Same as with hatred. Yes?
6: Isn't anti-Semitism evil? I mean, so there's always, the Torah says there's always going to be good and evil. And That's right. That's right. And we should just assume that it's always going to exist existed since the beginning of time and will continue to
0: exist good point good point yes that's true evil uh, there's good and evil in the world and that's that's the makeshift of the world on the other hand right like we said we can't be defined by it we have to define ourselves and and through defining ourselves we'll be able to, to tackle it in the best of ways yeah
6: and I would just say from a historical point Jews have never um, been, I think, more well off than in this country because we live in a free society that protects constitutional liberties. And in every other case right. in history, they haven't been. Right,
3: right, that's true. But true. I wouldn't say we okay. should assume anything for the future. No, that's why I fight every day for freedom. <laughs> right. It might be a different United States. Absolutely. Right. right.
4: Yeah, you gotta vote. Hmm? We have to vote for us. We better
6: vote right. It's
3: <laughs> not even voting, it's a matter of. I would argue that in the 1920s, the Jews in Germany did not expect that in, tw- in 20 years the Holocaust would happen. They were fine. They were wealthy. They were
6: assimilated. They, they, were, they, were,
3: assimilated. they were assimilated. They were. But I'm not talking uh, about materials.
6: materialistic success. I'm talking about limited constitutional government, where yeah, you have a legal system that protects your members. rights. But, but no. that's why we should fight to not. Right. <laughs> There's a
5: whole history of, Nazi, of anti-Semitism in the United States. Anti-Semitism United can States exist and it always will. Course. But someone can't violate
6: law. your rights without being punished for it. Mm.
8: Mm-hmm.
5: That's the greatness of
6: the society we live in.
2: Right.
0: Hopefully. We better go Hopefully. Out. Hopefully.
4: <laughs>
0: yeah. Alright. Okay. Well, thank you very much.